Today's Bible reading is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is God's Word. Thanks. Very much, And um, Yep, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy, and I'm the children youth worker here at Spice St. James. Um, let me pray for us as we come to the Good Spanish together. Father, we pray to you that you choose to reveal yourself to us through your word. Thank you that you reveal uh, your eternal nature and your great plan uh, to reveal uh, your grace and salvation to us. Thank you that you go further than that and also speak to us of how we should respond, how we should live uh, gracefully in lives. Pray now that as we uh, look at these verses together, you would give us soft hearts to receive and to hear what you're saying, and give me the right words, and that I might speak that truth. Amen. So as we kick off, I wonder, do you ever feel like there's a gap? Sorry, you can turn me down a little bit. Um, do you ever feel like there's a gap between what you think, what you believe, what you hold to be true, and how you actually end up living your life? Do you ever feel like there's a disconnect between what you want to shape your life day to day and the actual shape your day to day life takes? I think many of us uh, do feel like that. Many of us do feel um, that gap. I think we want to close that gap. <laughs> In other words, we want to be uh, men and women who walk the walk as well as talk the talk. But I think all too often, if you're anything like me, it feels like we don't end up in the kind of day-to-day trenches, trenches of our lives. We don't end up practicing what we preach. Uh, maybe for some of us this afternoon, it might even feel like Paul's words at the end of chapter 1 can apply to us. So Paul, at the end of chapter 1, speaking of uh, the false teachers in Crete, he writes these words. Look down with me at verse 16 of chapter 1, still page 1198. Paul says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. 
They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. And I wonder if you're here this afternoon as someone who claims to know God, and sometimes you worry that your actions do in fact deny Him. Well, um, the good news is that in today's passage, Paul is showing Titus, this church planter on Crete, how to equip the church to be totally different. To be totally different. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'll start what we have read to us. You, Paul writes, you, however, must teach what's appropriate for sound doctrine. Okay, so there are people, there are leaders on Crete who are living as hypocrites. But you, Titus, are to help the church walk the walk as well as talk the talk. You're to equip them to live graceful lives, to really live it out, to close that gap. And that means more than just teaching sound doctrine. It's really important for Titus to teach the church who God is and what God has, what God has done. But he's also called to show the church how that truth about Christ, about grace, about salvation, how that truth leads to godliness. As Pete mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, how does that truth lead to godliness? To draw out the implications of that truth, the truth of the gospel, for what godliness really looks like, what grace-filled lives look like day to day. And wonderfully, Paul uh, then spends the rest of today's passage doing exactly that. He doesn't just set titles off and say, okay, teach the church in what is appropriate for sound doctrine. No, he tells, okay, this is what you need to teach all of them. This is what you need to teach young men. Here's how you build this church up to create a beautiful, graceful community as different people play their different roles in the church. But I don't want to gloss over or pretend um, that as we look at these verses, they might all immediately look attractive and winsome to us. I wonder whether there was anything in those verses that stuck in your throat a little bit. Verse 5, young women, younger women to keep busy at home. Made of that phrase, subject to their husbands, they on that verse. Verse 9, Titus teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Well, all I want to say at this stage is that um, I will get there, I will address those things. I can see that we might, at first glance, this might not be quite as beautiful and attractive a picture as, as Paul was, I want us to think it is. Uh, but before we dive into those details of what grace school lives look like for all these different people addressed in the verses, I want to make sure that we're totally clear, crystal clear, on the motivation for wanting to live this way, to wanting to, for wanting to live different lives. Because particularly if you're um, here with us uh, at Spice and Years for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while, or you're kind of, you're still really not sure what you make of Christianity full stop, you can definitely be forgiven for saying, well, hang on. you guys are standing here saying, oh, this is, you know, this series is all about grace, it's all about what God's done for us. This looks pretty much to me like this. Do this, do that, do the other, be like this, be like that, be the other. And maybe you're thinking, maybe hang on, but this, this looks like you have to do all these things and then God likes you. You have to do all these things to earn God's favor. But let me show you that it really isn't that way. That's not how it works at all. Come with me to verse 11, the verse after the passage we had read. So Paul says to Titus, teach the church to live graceful lives for, starts at verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared past tense that offers salvation to all people. So we're to live different lives because of God's grace, His unearned, unmerited love and forgiveness and blessing. That grace has been offered to us 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not account of anything that we have done. It is God who moves first. Right? It's God who loves us. It's God who comes to us in the person of Jesus. It's God who offers us new life in him. So it's a bit like, imagine one of those kind of uh, medieval fairy tales. You've got a, a servant or a slave, a nobody in some backwater of an ancient kingdom. And the herald comes to them, finds them out, you know, where, where is this person? And they say, well, why do you want them? Why do you want them? The herald gets there eventually and announces to this servant that the king's adopted them. That the king has said that they are, that this king's son or daughter, they are the king's heir. The life of that servant will be transformed. They scroll up a bit. <laughs> they speak differently, act differently, live differently, think differently, do everything differently. And none of it to earn the favour of the king, but all in response to the love and favour the king has already shown them. So in the same way, we're to live different lives because of the love God has already shown us in extending his grace to us, in offering us salvation through Christ. That is our motivation for living graceful lives. And incidentally, I think that's why Titus is not called to tell the church to be lots of things. I don't know if you saw that. It doesn't say, tell the young men to be this, tell the older women to be the other. It says, teach them. So it's not, you know, Titus standing front of them and saying, Men be like this. But no, teach them the good news of Jesus. Show them the glory of Christ. The glory of God. And draw out what that means for their lives. Teach them how God changes our life. So now we're clear on the motivation for living differently, for living graceful lives. It's time to get down to the nitty-gritty of what it looks like day to day for different kinds of people. What's the shape? What's the shape of graceful lives? Or he doesn't choose to just tell Titus, he could have said, Titus, teach the church to be this. Teach the church, everyone in the church, to do that. No, he says, teach the older men this, teach the younger, younger women this, teach the older, you know, he, he does it all differently. Why? Well, because he, he wants the different people in the church on Crete to live out the faith of Christ, the faith they share in their different day-to-day -day lives. And together, to build a community of grace, as those graceful lives fit together in relationship to build a beautiful tapestry, a beautiful picture of how God transforms everything. So let's build up that picture uh, with Paul. So first, older men, look down with me in that verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So I think the picture here is of older men who can rightly be considered pillars of their community. Rightly, rightly be considered men that others should look up to. Like a well-built house facing a storm, older men are to be unshakable, unmovable, no swings of opinion, no sudden changes of mood, no rash words or actions, but rather a solid, weighty dignity. And that solidity, that plantedness, that reliability comes from their lives being built on the foundations of faith, love, and endurance. Faith in Christ is death and resurrection. Love, the love of Christ for us, experienced, grasped, known, in a profound way that leads to a settled desire to serve others 
as Christ has served them. Endurance, the sure and certain hope of Christ's return. That frees our older men and indeed all of us from the need to pursue fleeting pleasures. Stops us wobbling up in our convictions and commitments. And that picture of older men of dignity and maturity, worthy of respect, Paul adds a picture of older women that is one of beautiful holiness. Look down with me at verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So that, that word reverent there, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. What that means in the Greek is to is befitting a holy personal thing. Okay? Befitting a holy personal thing. So it's saying, older women, you are to live in a way that recognises and reflects the fact that you are now holy people. God now dwells in you by his spirit. And as a result, there's no time for the distraction, the pettiness of gossip, of slander, of who said what to whom. And oh, I can't believe they said that. No time for whiling away their lives in evenings of chit chat and another glass of wine beans. No, the life of someone made by holy by God is a life with purpose, with direction. And particularly in this verse, to teach what is good. To urge younger women to live in a way that reflects their faith in Christ. And I don't know if you notice as those verses are read that older women are the only group where Titus is specifically called by Paul to teach them how to teach others. If you follow, to teach them how to teach others. So Titus is to teach lots of groups what to do, but to teach older women to teach younger women. And so if, if you're an older woman here today, and I'm, I'm not going to draw that one, then that's, that's up to you. If you're an older woman here today. Um, then I think there are two things to take from that verse. The first is that if you do not feel, as a member of this church, like you're being taught how to teach others, and in particular how to teach and encourage younger women, then you should come to the leadership and say so. Say, Pete, Mark, Andy was preaching from Titus, and it says here that as the church leaders, you're to teach us how to teach what is good. So help me. I want, I want to play my role in this graceful community. Uh, but, but secondly, are you seeking to play that role? Are you looking to teach younger women how to live graceful lives? Are you looking for opportunities, formal or informal, to urge and encourage them to live out their faith in the Lord Jesus? Well, what do graceful lives look like for younger women? Well, let's have a look at verses 4 and 5. The older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will mind the word of God. Okay, so the overriding emphasis here, I think, is, is one of love. Okay? A love that must, of course, come ultimately and first from the Lord Jesus, who loved us. And that love flows out into a love for family, for partners and husbands and children. It flows, it, it's a love that's directed and controlled towards the right ends and the right people, self-controlled and pure. A love that is practical, that seeks to provide for those they love. A love that extends beyond family to those around them. And a love that is pleased to voluntarily recognise the love and responsibility of our husband. And whether, within that overriding emphasis on, on a, a godly love, there are a couple of phrases at least in these verses that are tricky, or uncomfortable. So the first is, is busy at home. I don't know what you mean with that, because you heard that word. That, that sounds pretty bad. Um, that's actually better translated. The Greek's better translated working at home. Okay? 
Okay, so the point here that Paul's making is to contrast, is a contrast with the lazy culture around them. Okay, so Cretes, as we'll come on to later, Cretes, 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 uh, one of the descriptions of Cretans is that they're lazy gluttons. Okay, so the culture is lazy, it's saying that in contrast to that, women as wives and mothers are to work to provide for their families. And it still holds today, as uh, the author John Stott uh, puts it, that a woman who accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and the children should love and not neglect them. Work to revive them. But just to be clear, this verse is not saying in any way that women who are indeed married women shouldn't do paperwork outside the home. That's not what this verse is saying. Instead, the picture here is of the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31. Don't, don't uh, turn there, but let me read a couple of verses to you to give you a sense of a flavour of what that, the picture of that chapter paints. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. That's what working at home looks like. What about subject to their husbands? That phrase at the end of verse 5, for women that are young women to be subject to their husbands. I'm aware that as you heard that read, you hear me read that now, that might conjure up connotations of uh, injustice. Male oppression, uh, women's doormats, maybe. Um, but, but that's not, that's, that really isn't what, that, what this verse is, is talking about. Instead, it, it is a call on wives to recognise voluntarily the distinct God given roles within marriage. So husbands are to take particular responsibility for the overall good of the marriage in all dimensions. And wives are called not to grab at that responsibility but to honour it. But crucially, in doing so, they are in no way forgoing equality, in dignity, or status. Any more than Christ, the Lord Jesus, took, forsook his dignity or his equality with the Father when he voluntarily submitted to, became subject to, the Father's plan for the salvation of the world. Now, I'd, I'd love to say more, and I know there's lots more that can be said on that, but do come and grab it at the end if, if you'd like to chat more about it. So we've got a picture of older men of dignity, older women of an active holiness, young women with a practical, directive life. What about younger men? Verse 6, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. All the other groups addressed in these verses have at least four different instructions. Paul says, younger men, be self-controlled. What? Why? He, he, doesn't want to, he doesn't want to dilute the message, he wants to keep things nice and simple. Be self-controlled. So why the emphasis is well, young men, we, um, have lots of strong desires and impulses. Tend to be quick to speak, slow to listen. Tend to be tempted by sexual immorality, willing to push others out of the way and our desire to get somewhere to get on. And so Paul says that self-control is absolutely key. As young men, we have to recognise that our old self, with all of its competing and out of control desires, our old self is dead. Our old self was nailed to death with Christ on the cross. The life we now live is not our own, it's a gift. It's a new life from Christ. And so all of our desires are to be ordered under a controlling desire to serve and honour Jesus in all things. And so what that means is that self-control, the core of self-control is not a call to be boring. I think often it's heard that way. It's not a call to be boring. It's not a call to, it's not a call to, be, to do nothing. It's not a call to lock yourself in your room and try desperately not to make a mistake. 
Now, the call to self-control is a call to exhibit the same self-discipline of a warrior who goes into battle and does not turn to the left or to the right, who fights and wars against the desires of their soul for comfort, for distraction, for safety, and instead sets their face towards the battle because all of those desires are under their desire to serve and love the king. Our King Jesus. That's what it looks like to be self-control. So we've got, we've done older women, sorry, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And then Paul addresses Titus himself, verses 7 and 8. In everything, Titus, set them, that is the younger men, an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. So here's what grace-filled life looks like for leaders within the church. Of course, they're not going to live perfect lives. All of us fall short of perfection. All of us need to offer God's forgiveness and grace. But they are to live lives that can be described as an example in everything. And I think what that means is that we, we as, as leaders, leaders are to live lives that enable them to say to others, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's the standard. Can you say that? As a leader, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But of course, being an example isn't enough. Leaders also have to teach the truth that leads to godliness. And to do so, crucially, in a way that fits with their life. So it's teaching for the glory of God and for the benefit and good of others, not for their own pride or ego. That's integrity. Teaching in a manner that's appropriate the subject matter, teaching in a way that's appropriate to speak to saying words about God, his eternal nature and our eternal destiny, that's seriousness. And being willing to teach the whole counsel of God, everything we know about who he is, what he's done and how we're to respond, that's soundness of speech. And then we hit verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Of course, it's no real distinction between slave and free. 
But it wasn't obvious. It really wasn't obvious. We live in a culture shaped by, by, by those letters. Right? Aristotle, the great philosopher of Greek civilization, taught that some men simply did not have the rational capacity to govern themselves. That it was appropriate for them to be used as living tools by others. It's into that culture that Paul writes that there's no distinction between slave and free. But, but in these verses, uh, verses 9 and 10, Paul is not primarily concerned with the institution of slavery. He's got a much more, in some sense, a much more down-to-earth pressing task, which is to speak to the Christian slaves who are caught up in that institution. And say, so what does it look like for them to live gracefully lives? First of all, I teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them. So Titus is to call slaves to work hard and prove trustworthy, whatever kind of human master they're serving. For, as Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, the true master of every slave now, every Christian slave, their true master is the Lord Jesus. It's him they're serving. And so, while, while none of us uh, this afternoon are caught up in the institution of slavery, these verses do apply to us as we seek to live our graceful lives in our workplaces. We're to serve our master, the Lord Jesus, by respecting our bosses, by trying to please them, not making stuff from the stationary pump or fiddling our expenses a bit, but instead proving honest and trustworthy. So there we have it. That's the picture Paul paints of this graceful community. The picture he's asking Titus to equip the church to live out as they live grace-filled lives alongside one another. And imagine with me for a minute what stark contrast such a community would be with the culture of Cretan. So if you look back with me uh, to the verdict on Cretans from a Cretan philosopher, chapter 1, verse 12, this is Epimenides, quoted by Paul. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So if that's the culture, and we've given that Epimenides is a Cretan, we think that's probably a pretty fair assessment. If that's the culture, what would the impact be of honest Christian slaves in a culture of lies? Of self-controlled Christian young men amongst evil groups? Of hard-working Christian young women among lazy blessings? Well, Paul tells us. In verses 4 and 5, Paul writes that younger women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled in the earth, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. Why? So that no one will lie on the word of God. They're to live graceful lives so that no one will have grounds to back out the truth about God's grace in Christ. And then in verse 8, Paul calls Titus to live and teach in a way that cannot be condemned. Why? So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Christian leaders live in such a way that their opponents, those who oppose them, have nothing to shoot at, nothing to hit them with, apart from their faith in Christ. And then finally, wonderfully, imagine, imagine as a slave, you hear this letter read, you're the bottom, you're the bottom of the pile, you're nobody in society, and Paul says, you, you can live in such a way. As to make the teaching about God's Saviour attractive and the best ever. And my guess is that, that that great truth that how we live, that by living graceful lives, 
we can shape the way that people see and indeed feel about Jesus. My sense is that we know that truth in our own lives because we've experienced it. That for most of us here today, we're here, whether we're uh, whether we go to church for many years, whether we're exploring mysteries, we're here, at least in part because of what we saw and continue to see in the life of someone who follows Jesus. And we thought, Maybe I should think about this Jesus thing, because this seems, seems to make a difference to that person's life. So for me, I first kind of fully committed to following Jesus, first made Jesus the centre of my life and sought to live by a day to day at university. And a big part of that for me uh, was uh, a young man called Mike Harris. So in the midst of first year of university, so for those of you who've been, you probably don't need to describe in detail, but you know, madness, wrongness, just silliness, stupidity, tears. Over emotionalism, mountains out on the hills, right? Everywhere. There's this young man of self control, of peace, right? So I play, I play rugby with Mike, and 18 year olds love to shout at other 18 year olds on a rugby field because they're on men. Um, so, you know, you can, you can gather around the post after a try, you can see them try, and they're all you know, yelling and screaming, and nothing's really happening. I remember Mike, you know, 20 minutes ago, and said, Right, there's three things we're going to do differently to win. We're going to hit the rugby. He was in total control, self-control, under pressure. And then in the bar afterwards, one of the boys, in amongst it, they're not holding back, but at the same time always in control of himself and of his actions. And I wanted that. I wanted that peace, that self-control, that stability in the midst of a, a world and a kind of context where everything's spoiled. And that dream is towards church. That dream is towards Christ. I don't know what, what your story is, um, but I do know that you know, as we close, I think what that leaves us with, that, that, that truth that our lives have a huge impact on how people see and think about Jesus, that leaves us with a challenge and an encouragement. First, the challenge is this. If you're here this afternoon, if we're here this afternoon as followers of Jesus, and we are public followers of Jesus, which we should be, we call ourselves followers of Jesus then we each have a responsibility to live in a way that's consistent with that thing. In our day-to-day -day lives, at home, at work, and at church, we have a responsibility to live graceful lives, to play our role in a graceful community. Because if we don't, Paul warns us that people will malign or oppose the word of God. They will distance themselves from the saving truth about Jesus on account of So we should care very much how we live day to day with our colleagues, with our families, with our friends. Not just, of course, because we want to glorify all of God from whom every blessing flows and who's given us everything, but also for the sake of those around us. And if that feels daunting, well, yeah, it is daunting, and that's why we need God. To help us, to strengthen us by His Spirit, to live in a way that makes the teaching about Him, about Jesus, attractive. And we need a strength because if we just try and do it in our own strength, the best we're going to achieve is that people think that we're impressive. That's not the point at all. We have an impressive God. A glorious God. We need Him to set up home in us. We need Him to change from the inside out so that as people see us, they see the glory of the God before. That's the challenge. But the encouragement, right, is that by God's grace and His help, we have the immense privilege of doing that. Of being able to make the good news of Jesus attractive to those around us. 
I think the particular joy of this passage is the way it shows that we can do that whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Because this passage is about day to day. And so I think, I think it suggests to us that the primary way that we make the teaching about Jesus attractive is not by changing the world. Only some will do that, the best. <laughs> Fixing society, only a few might do that. Doing something radical, selling all our possessions, moving to Africa, you know. The way that we make the teaching about Jesus attractive is in the day to day. It's in the normal, gritty stuff of life. It's by doing normal things in a beautiful way that we reveal our beautiful Saviour. It's by doing normal things in a beautiful way that we reveal our beautiful Saviour. I think we've got to we can all do that. As the lyrics of the song puts it, Now Lord, I will be yours alone and live that all my sin the strength to follow your commands. Lord God, we are solid when we fail, we fail so often to live grace for advice, to live in accordance with the truth that you profess. Father, we need your spirit work in us to change us and strengthen us. Help open our lives to the glory of Jesus when we love him more and long uh, to serve him in all we do. Father, we pray. We, you know, we sit here in the middle of a city of eight million people, each one of whom needs to know Jesus. And so we pray that we would make him attractive. Amen.